This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. In this episode of the show, I talk with Jared Maslin about what it means to have privacy on the internet. We talk about the difference between privacy and secrecy, the benefits and limitations of GDPR and the possibility of privacy regulation coming to the United States. And we explore the biggest challenges facing data privacy today. Jared Maslin is a lecturer at the University of California, Berkeley School of Information, where he focuses on ethics, privacy, and data protection in data science. He also serves as the Chief Operating Officer and Director of Privacy Consulting with Good Research LLC, where their mission is to build a global community with the knowledge and agency to thrive in a digital world. In support of this mission, Jared works at the intersection of strategic business objectives, consumer expectations, and regulatory influences on a global scale. His work bridges academia and industry, partnering with industry clients in designing, implementing, and monitoring solutions to emerging privacy, preservation, and compliance challenges. Hi, Jared. Hi, Deb. So, Jared, this conversation is such a pleasure for me. We get to dialogue offline all the time, so I already have a sense of the kinds of brilliant things you say, and just I'm really thrilled to have a chance to share some of it with our listeners. I want to start off with a question that comes out of countless conversations with my undergraduates. I think that at this stage, most of them, again, this is a generation born in the age of surveillance capitalism, of camera phones, and of social media, expect that they don't have any real privacy and that they can't and that they shouldn't expect data privacy. So when I go on one of my typical rants about the importance of data privacy, I get a lot of blank stares and questions that generally follow this logic. If I'm not doing anything wrong, why should I care about protecting my privacy? Privacy is what you need or demand if you've got something to hide. I have nothing to hide, so why is it wrong for somebody to have access to my data? So the conversations that I have with students when I stress the importance of data privacy, tend, tend to bring up those kinds of questions. And I'm wondering if you could answer this question on my behalf. If I'm not doing anything wrong, why should I care about protecting my privacy? That's a great question because it really calls into effect a lot of things that, that the individual feels. So it's like the start of a long conversation to understand context. But it's it's such you're you're right. It's such a common question. So the first thing I get to is is to understand what privacy means to that person, um, because many people tend to conflate privacy and, and secrecy with one another. You know, it's the idea of I have my phone, I I don't have anything to hide on it, but I'm still not going to unlock it and let anybody walk up and start perusing through it because I expect to have that right to privacy. It's not that I'm trying to keep a secret. It's the same sort of thing if you, know, you use the restroom. People use the restroom. We know what happens in a bathroom, but you still close the door, right? There's that aspect of you expecting privacy in that. And those sorts of expectations are contextual. Some people will have more uh, interest in controlling their their information and how it gets shared and how it's disseminated. But there's the, there's a difference between privacy and the secrets that we want to keep. But then to that point, I mean, first, there's the aspect of controlling personal information. 
there is an overlap between these ideas of secrecy and privacy, but privacy is more than that. It's not just preventing people that you don't want to learn information about you from doing so, but it's also about maintaining um, a control aspect or maintaining a, a right that we're trying to put forth. You know, you hear a lot that data privacy is a fundamental right. It is a human right. But in that, there are specific things that require you to have control over time which is the second aspect of that question. It's while you might feel that way today, the idea of privacy is that you should have the ability to change your mind tomorrow, in a year, in five years. So the example that we use a lot is a picture of your face 15 years ago would have been a very different thing to share. You probably would have felt very different about here's, here's a picture of me printed out or here's a digital picture that's on a computer. Now it can unlock my phone. It can unlock different things with it can unlock different pieces of technology and access to different pieces of information about us. So the utility of different data points changes over time and how we feel about it as a result and what we expect in terms of privacy, what kind of choices we want to be able to make with respect to our data changes over time. And lastly, again, bring it back to that human aspect of it's, it's, it's something that a lot of us do innately. In terms of, they, I have expectations, those expectations are mine and mine alone. To those students that would say, why, why do I need to care? Well, one, your information has value. And we'll, we'll talk a lot, and I know you've had a lot of, of different discussions around this idea of what businesses do with personal data. But as technology evolves and as those pieces of information can be leveraged in more ways, either by bad actors or by entities that are just doing things outside of your expectation or outside of your consent, we get to a point where you have to think about the, the value of that data. And as a result, the value of your ability to decide who can have access to it and who can't and who is allowed to use it for certain purposes. So in saying, I don't have anything to hide, why should I care about privacy? It's the same reason of why would you leave money on the table? You wouldn't, right? If it's your money, you'd want to keep it safe. You'd want to keep it in a place where you can control who you give it to and who you don't. Um, it's the same sort of thing with your personal information. It has value beyond just the abstract and contextual description of I want privacy. In that enormously important and helpful answer, one word that I think I want to tease out a little bit is the word contextual. Contextual privacy comes up quite a bit. And if I could be a little bit adversarial to go back to my undergraduate students, one of the things that they might suggest is that given contextual privacy, which I'm going to define and, and you can add or challenge this definition as you see fit, the idea that what we understand to be private changes depending on our context. So for example, I might not leave money out on a table in a restaurant or at the graduate student union on Berkeley's campus. I might leave money out on the table in my house. I might leave money out at the club that I go to where I know everybody else is a member. I might even leave money out on the table at my gym Equinox because I believe that everybody else there has more money than I do. I'm but a humble humanities professor in a world of people who earn a lot of money in technology. So that idea of contextual privacy really goes back to the idea that our expectations about privacy change depending on the context. And one argument, again, a little bit adversarial to what you're saying, is that contextually right now, we have entered an arena and a time where our expectation is that we don't have privacy. The expectation is built in over a series of business decisions that have been taken as granted or self-evident in which our data is expected 
to be part of our transaction as a user agreement to to be on a platform or to uh, use a site. Contextual privacy has also very much changed because we're so used to the idea that we generate content for social media companies ourselves. We put those pictures up uh, ourselves um, and then those pictures become the, the property of that social media platform. Now, whereas as in your example, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I would have a picture and it would be an object and I would have discretion and governance over who had access to it. And I would accept that as the premise for the privacy around access to that image. In today's world, the expectation is that if I have an image and I share it with anybody, it could be anywhere and everywhere, right? So I wonder if you could explicate a little bit more of the terms of what we're calling contextual privacy, and maybe some of the challenges of understanding contextual privacy, given some of the things that we have naturalized as not private, right, or have come to expect other people to be able to access, including people in companies. Yes, that's a great question, Deb, because it 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 requires us to pull back and to think about the different hats we wear in a day, the different personas that we embody in a given day or in a given scenario. So, so the first piece, I, in using that term contextual, I have to recognize the, the work of Helen Nissenbaum, who coined that phrase contextual integrity into the mainstream, this idea that individuals have differing expectations due to differences in the scenario. So the example that I tend to use is the idea of going to a doctor's office for a doctor's appointment versus going to the bank. Now, if we imagine a world in which banks aren't on our phones, let's say we're going to a physical office for the sake of consistency and comparing. If I go to the doctor's office, I expect I'm going to give my insurance card, maybe my driver's license. I'm going to fill out some forms. I'll go into the doctor's room. Maybe a nurse or practitioner comes in, takes my blood pressure, my height, my weight. If right there they stopped and said, what's your bank account number? Right. You'd make a sideways face. You'd probably say, do I need to leave? Like you tell me yours first. Right. That's a very odd question because of what we expect about the context of going to the doctor. If we then pivot that and say, if you walked up to a bank teller's desk and they said, what medications are you on right now? You'd have an equally strange face. Right. That's just that what we expect to be doing. So it gets to a lot of the cultural ingraining that makes global privacy so difficult to handle because we want to have a, a silver bullet. We want to have that panacea that we can apply as the consistent answer to all things of what people expect. When in reality, dealing in the field of global data privacy requires you to break these things down to be able to make them personalized enough that individuals can have that choice for themselves. And I know that you've spoken with many different uh, folks on the podcast about ideas of human-centric design or user-centered design and user-centered systems. And that idea gets to the same kind of concept of without understanding the diversity of users, you're bound to create a product that is not inclusive of all of the contextual nuance that you need to. Now, that makes solutions incredibly difficult because it guarantees that you'll have many different answers to the same question. That's why we say a lot in privacy, like in many fields, it depends, right? That tends to be the beginning of many different answers. But there are areas, you're absolutely right, say in the U.S., when, we, when I speak with students about this, in the U.S. in particular, they'll say, well, that's as a consumer, as an employee, they flat out tell me in the code of conduct, I have no expectation of privacy when I'm in the office or when I'm using my company device. And those are areas where contextually we have accepted that as reasonable 
because we have, for one reason or another, I, for example, would say, well, they're using it for information security purposes. If they can't see how I'm using the device, how can they secure that device on behalf of the company? But that's my rationality. Other people might have a different one. To say that because we have accepted that as a, a reality almost calls into question whether if we can't change that, then what is the point of activism in this space? If we expect that it's just an inevitability, why are we even asking the question? And I think the point is because what we're trying to do in privacy is to say over time, not just at a static point in time, but over time, we have an obligation to listen understand and reconsider what those expectations are of individuals and individuals as part of groups so that people can have the choice that they need to make to be able to define what is and is not right for them. It's not my place to tell you what you should or should not share, and it's not your place to tell me that. My job in the privacy space is to design solutions that create those inflection points, those decisions that allow you, me, and everyone else to make a decision for ourselves that aligns to our own contextual beliefs and expectations. I want to take advantage of having an expert in privacy on the show to ask a couple questions about the history of privacy concerns and, and the history of privacy protections, uh, and more recently, the directive to protect our privacy that we've seen emerge over the, I think, the past couple of years, at least, if not the past decade. Last week, I was interviewing a professor of law who works on uh, cryptocurrencies. And one thing that she pointed out is that even if cryptocurrencies are a new thing, the idea of cryptography or encryption as a productive and important tool for transactions is, is not new. Uh, it made me think of the days of graduate school where as a professor of English literature, I spent a lot of time thinking about the materiality of, of the book and the materiality of letters. And in olden days, there were elaborate seals of wax put on letters or put on manuscripts before they were sent anywhere. And those tools became tools of encryption. Those seals were incredibly important to maintain the integrity of whatever messages were transmitted to ensure that only a trusted interlocutor would be able to open them. And in fact, these uh, encryption tools and strategies got pretty elaborate, moving from wax figures to waxes that required certain forms of keys in order to open them, right? And hence, we get our current uh, understanding and infrastructure of cryptocurrency. I assume that the history of privacy is at least as long and at least as interesting and capacious. But I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, at least in our modern times, about how data privacy emerged as a concern. And in particular, not just how it emerged, but how the landscape of data privacy, how we as consumers treat and think about data, data privacy and how industry treats and thinks about data privacy has changed over time. Absolutely. The the first premise that I'll put forth is that I, having been in compliance, and that includes aspects of information security in many ways, as well as the progression into privacy throughout my career, I actually see our evolution of data privacy being very similar to that of, of information security and information protection. It, it really, I, I'll describe it as privacy feels like InfoSec's younger sibling. Just to clarify for listeners, when he says infosex younger sibling, this is not a explicit reference to sexuality. It's info security. <laughs> Information security, short yeah. of okay. infosex. 
Yes. Infosex. All right. Just don't want Apple to uh, make me put an explicit label on this podcast. No, just no, no, no. I... Please. When I see the conversations that we have with users and the conversations that regulators are having and the conversations that businesses are having and all the decisions that those individual parties are making, it follows a very similar trend, just maybe 15 to 10 to 15 years in a delay. The, the corollary there is the way that businesses talk about it. Maybe 10 years ago, it was seen much as a, it's a nice to have. It's a, it's a good thing. I'd like to have that, but I don't have to. What law forces me to do this sort of thing? But that has evolved into, it's not just the law. There's two sides of the coin that we're now considering. There's what must I do and what should I do? And that's where we kind of introduce this contextual aspect. But the field of privacy itself is, is obviously much, much longer than the last decade. And you can check it all the way back to arguments of the U.S. Constitution, including aspects of privacy in, in, in the First, Third, Fourth, and, and Fifth Amendments, uh, all, albeit not mentioned explicitly. There's arguments made that it was at least in heart there. You get to the FTC becoming uh, a body and being established in the United States in, in 1914, I think. And you get to this then expansion of the idea of protecting sealed mail, like you talked about. So protecting sealed mail wasn't long after the creation of the FTC. And then you get to, I know near and dear to your heart, the kind of Orwellian thought process in you know, the 40s. 1984 was written in 1948. And then the establishment of this idea by the United Nations of a declaration of human rights um, in that same year. So all of these concepts have been around for over a century, and they've really just evolved in terms of how ubiquitous they are in everyday interactions. So the more technology we have, the easier it is for us to share information. And that includes not just companies getting information and includes you and me on this podcast right now. We're using a third party platform to record these things. We are enlisting the services of a third party to record the audio that we have on this discussion. That isn't necessarily the same, but if we go back 20 years ago, are we recording phone calls? If so, who are we sharing that information with? Are we trusting the phone company to only record when we know that they're recording? So as we think about the evolution of technology with its increasing rate and its increasing complexity and really its integration with our modern day, how we get through the day, whether it's how we plan breakfast, lunch, and dinner, how we communicate with our loved ones and our families, how we do our jobs as professionals in either a remote or, or in-person environment, and how we handle everyday uh, responsibilities. The, the ubiquity of technology has made it such that these things are deeply ingrained into what we do. And that gets to the point where it was no longer a self-regulatory space because we saw a lot of that in the 80s and then the 90s and even into the 2000s, where at best it was a corporate responsibility sort of thing. It was a do the right thing, but without forcing. So even up to the days of GDPR going into place in, say, May of 2018, I had clients that would say, until there's a law that forces me, I'm not going to do anything. I, I, I will do what is good, but to the extent that it gets in the way of money printing operations and revenue generating operations, those will not get priority. You get then into GDPR, where GDPR essentially says, we're going to place control of personal information back into the hands of data subjects. That kind of term, that kind of way of thinking may have been culturally understood in the EU, 
but in the U.S. was still kind of a foreign idea. And in other places around the globe, varied amounts of alignment with that thought process. And now we see U.S. state-based regulation with still lacking federal regulation outside of, say, deceptive practices in the FTC Act. Outside of that, largely no omnibus law or comprehensive law, if you will, at the federal level. We have states putting stakes in the ground and saying, here's what California feels. Here's what Virginia feels. Here's what Colorado feels. And businesses are saying, this is so complex. What do I have to do? But it continues to get complex for consumers because it is innately part of our behavior as individuals and interacting and communicating and just fulfilling our daily responsibilities, be it personally or professionally. So I want to push on this idea of what you're what you're talking about in terms of roughly what I would call uh, regulation versus uh, corporate governance. And this is something that I really enjoy asking people because I have this conversation with students, particularly under my undergraduate students all the time, where we talk about that relationship between what must I do and what ought I to do. Again, I would say that what must I do roughly falls in line with the idea of regulation. What ought I to do falls into line with the idea of what we might call ethics. What I typically find is that Companies love when I talk about ethics because then I'm talking about what they ought to do, not what they must do, not what they will get punished if they fail to do, right? And so they love that idea of ethics. But interestingly, what I find is that so much a part of our common set of accepted perceptions and accepted taken for granted truths is this idea that the digital technology space should be governed by personal choices and by things like uh, personal individual responsibility for decisions and by governance that actually those things tend to make my students in particular or the people that I talk to in companies feel as though what really ought to be elevated are uh, personal responsibility and, and governance. It's kind of just truth uh, that's taken as as self-evident in many parts of our culture. In my classes, I typically talk to students about the means available to mitigate harmful activities, behaviors, and consequences that aggregate in and from the tech sector. And I typically talk about those three measures. Uh, again, I'll describe them as self-education, things like digital literacy, awareness, conscientious and informed consumer behavior. The second being corporate responsibility, primarily governance or self-imposed uh, structures or, or market-imposed ethical behavior. You know, that is to say, um, visibly responsible behavior made in service of pleasing and therefore retaining customers. And then the third of those is regulation. And I'll say that I think that our acceptance of somewhat of the, the truths that I say are self-evident, the kind of quasi-libertarian idea embodied in Silicon Valley of unregulated business and of individual choice has tended to operate as a kind of status quo. And until very recently, the kind of uh, standard answer that I would get from students and members of the community have repeated that idea, which again is very convenient to tech companies, that it all comes down to consumers taking personal responsibility for themselves. You're responsible for your own privacy. You're responsible for what you put on the internet. You're responsible for everything that you consent to, every single term and conditions that you accept, every single privacy policy that you click, I agree to in order to access something. That it really, if something gets out there, uh, it's your fault and it's your responsibility to protect your privacy. And 
of course, I think that elevating corporate responsibility over legislation also works in service of these companies because of what I think of as obvious reasons. It doesn't impose any punishment for bad action, as I said. It rather gives companies a fair amount of leeway to choose whether they voluntarily want to protect community privacy rather than, as I said, punishment if they don't. So I've probably already showed my cards here about where I think that I would like to see policy go. Uh, and it would probably surprise no one to learn that I lean fairly favorably onto the idea of more reasonable regulation. But even at that, I still admit the limitations of regulation and the importance of internal governance structures and consumer behavior. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you see these three, that is to say individual behavior, corporate governance, and regulation working in cooperation with one another in around the idea of promoting a better ecology of, of privacy. Absolutely. I, I, I believe that the triangulation that you're pointing to is actually very much in line with, with what I and, and my colleagues argue and have argued in, in, in a paper that we wrote regarding how we can learn from Sarbanes-Oxley and related financial reporting issues. But getting directly to your question, if I think about those three aspects, First being self-education and, and increasing the awareness, right? One of our goals uh, of, of the work that, that I do and that my colleagues do, we ideate it and, and articulate it as trying to ensure that all individuals have the awareness and the autonomy to thrive in a digital world, right? So that first piece of that is that they have to be aware of what's happening. They have to have visibility into what's happening and have it communicated in a way that they can understand. We can't assume that every person reading a policy or a notice is either a lawyer or a technically inclined individual or that they're able to parse what's being said by that particular company or by that entity at any point in time. But the self-education piece is first how companies can show individuals what's happening so that they can start to understand then when they are communicating what they do this is what it means for you consumer or for you data subject. I do think that the responsibility is both on the companies and on supporting government or, or oversight bodies to provide those sorts of resources. So you're getting to this point of burden. If we want to say that individuals have the burden to make sure that they know what they're agreeing to, to know that when they click, I agree, they understand what they agree to because it's their own choice then they have to be provided the information not to provide just consent, but informed consent. Without it, consent is just a checkbox. It's not really consent unless it's informed. And self-education, in order to self-educate, materials have to be made available to me as an individual. So there's that bridge, that gap that needs to be bridged in terms of individuals who want to learn so that they can be aware and make choices for themselves on an informed level. And then the businesses and the entities who have practices that they need to communicate. Without that bridge, then we're asking consumers to do something that's nearly impossible, or at least would require some degree of a crystal ball or intense under the covers understanding of what that business is and how it operates. In either case, that gap can be, in my opinion, too, too far to, to bridge without partnership from businesses or entities that are handling data. That's on the self-education side. Then you get to the corporate responsibility side. So in self-education, we have businesses and entities saying, here's what we do with data. Corporate responsibility is then saying, here's how we're going to do those things. We've made claims. Here's how we're going to achieve those claims. And to speak 
directly about what kinds of controls, what kind of processes they put in place, what rights individuals have, so that they are, again, informed on what that is. But then that leads to the third piece, which is that regulatory side. In a world of self-governance, which is where we're at with privacy policies today, for example, we as consumers are expected to trust those documents as accurate and comprehensive. In many cases, they are not. They are far from it. And that's even if they are understandable to the individual and not written in legal terms. But the idea that a policy gives all information necessary for an individual to make a penultimate decision about their personal data is a flawed concept right now. And by self-regulating, which in this case I'm saying self-regulating because privacy policies are not audited documents today. There is no oversight board that audits policies to say, not are you complying with the law by including information in there that you need, but does this accurately reflect your practices? Do you do what you say you do? Without that aspect in regulation, then it's all trust oriented towards the consumer. The consumer is expected to take everything at its face value, assume it as accurate, and move forward. And that's not an expectation that I think businesses would expect of consumers, for example. So when we get to this triangulation, you're actually describing very aptly what I think needs to happen for us to have effective regulation. You need consumers to be made aware of what's happening, and that's communicated by the entities that want to process their data. You have the corporate responsibility of those businesses to do what they say they're doing. And then the regulation provides that third piece, which is who independently is vetting that it's correct, all to try and create this idea of trust. Because ultimately, that's what privacy decisions are. I'm deciding who I am going to trust with my personal information. Now, you mentioned about how you know there's a lot of earlier we spoke about companies where they just expect it, right? And there's also aspects of power dynamics. Say, if while I was in college and Facebook was still very, very much a thing for college students, if you wanted me to make a decision and I said, you know what, I don't like what Facebook's doing with my information. I'm going to stop using this platform. There's an issue of power dynamics. And by that, I mean, they have power in what it will harm me to pull myself out of that tool. At that particular time, if you wanted to network with individuals, Facebook was the thing. That was the tool. So if you pulled yourself off Facebook, it's almost like pulling yourself out of your social group. So our ability to just say, I don't like what you're doing, company, and we see this very, very heavily in the technology industry, that kind of decision is not necessarily possible. So we also have to acknowledge the aspects of power dynamics that almost gets into an antitrust kind of discussion. Do individuals actually have the choice that we're saying they do? Or is that choice going to harm them in ways that we're not considering so that they don't really have that actual choice? But I love that triangulation between self-education to say what you do, corporate responsibility to actually do it, and then regulation to ensure you do. Right. I mean, I think of Zoom, for example. You and I conduct our classes over Zoom. A student could say, I reject Zoom's privacy policy. But then how would they take classes at UC Berkeley, right? In the iSchool, the master's in data science program. If you opt out, then certainly you have the opportunity to do so. But the consequences of that are severe, including you lose out on certain opportunities, you're isolated from certain groups. I guess I have a question about 
privacy policies uh, writ large. And and maybe before we get into that question, we could talk a little bit about privacy policies as a category and as a document. I think that for listeners outside of a group of the audience who works specifically in data privacy or an adjacent area, or that's taken our course on data science and human values at Berkeley, where I know you don't let anybody get out of the class without a comprehensive understanding of all things privacy policy related. Outside of that group of people, privacy policies might be those pesky pop-ups that you have to click through impatiently before getting to the app that you're trying to use or the website that you're trying to open. And if we're talking about contextual integrity, I think we have to talk about the context in which people accept privacy policies right, and accept terms and conditions. If I am outside of a Beyonce concert and I've spent $300 and I can only access my ticket by way of a, a certain app and the concert's about to start, right? I'm reading that privacy policy in a moment where I'm impatient, where I have something to go to and where uh, I'm losing out on something that I very much want to do. So I'm very likely to just click the I accept box in there, you know, if I need to stamp my initials on it and, and go through. So oftentimes privacy policies are taken, for example, right before you're set up to start taking your first class at, at Berkeley and you need to use Zoom. And if you don't use Zoom, you're going to be marked absent in that first class. And, and that's the context in which you are accepting those particular terms and conditions. So I think it's important to think about that context. And I think it's important to think about what kind of power or what kind of agency people have in the moment where they are reading those privacy policies, as well as what kind of digital literacy they have or what kind of privacy literacy they have to understand what they're agreeing to. So in terms of privacy policies, and given all of this, what do privacy policies offer or protect against in a best case scenario? Are these protections for consumers or are they protections for companies in terms of companies enlisting what potential harms or risks or things that you're agreeing to so that they protect themselves against you know, possible suits or claims of encroachment, for example, or misuse of data? So what do privacy policies actually offer? What do they protect against? And what do they protect against in a best case, good faith scenario, as well as a more cynical one, as I've outlined? What are the limitations of these policies in preventing bad actors from causing harm or uh, taking advantage of consumers? Yeah. So deep, deep question. Allow, allow me to dive in deeply, if I may. So the first, the, the concept of privacy policies address a lot of different compliance obligations. And by compliance obligations, I mean, there are a lot of different laws uh, in the U.S. alone, but it, globally, there are a lot of different laws, both for countries, for regions, and for individual U.S. states within the United States that do already require some kind of privacy policy. It won't always be called a privacy policy. Sometimes it's called a privacy notice. Sometimes it's called a privacy terms of service. Sometimes it's just called terms of service or terms of use. And they embed privacy terms within those documents. They come by many names and they come in many shapes and forms, which is one of the many difficulties with the current state of privacy policies, which is when you open one, you have no idea what to expect. But if I back up and say, what's the intended purpose of a policy from the perspective of what a regulation would say or what a regulator would argue. I think that can be best, best said as it's a way to provide information that is critical to the data subject, whether it's a consumer, 
It's a patient in a health environment. It's a student at a university. It's an employee at a company. Whoever that data subject is, it is the policy is intended to provide information necessary for that data subject to make an informed decision about their practices as it involves personal information. So it's all to say before you use a tool, before a company can process your personal data, this policy is intended to give you the information necessary to make a decision for yourself. Now, fast forward to how these policies actually exist today. They do not exist in a form that allows you and me as consumers or you and me as data subjects more broadly to know enough about the business to make a truly informed decision. Now, why is that? Because regulations generally are not prescriptive about one, the format and organization of policies, and two, between different countries and different states in the United States, you have different sets of requirements about what needs to be provided. If you were to go to a global company that operates out of the United States today, you'd see probably an EU-UK policy. You'd see one specific to maybe the state of California. You'd probably see a global one. You might even see a default one that doesn't really say what the scoping is. And all of those sorts of, of differentiations make it such that it's not doing what you hope it's doing. Easily and clearly and unambiguously providing the information you need to make a decision about your data. Second piece is, there's, it calls into question the, the paradox of transparency, which loosely suggests that you get to a point of diminishing returns where the more words in a policy, the less likely a user is to be able to, one, read it all and finish it without losing interest, and two, really understand it. So there's this delicate balance between too little and too much information. What that leads to is companies of a very complex nature trying to condense as much as possible into very specific phrases. So when we review privacy policies in our course and when we look at them professionally, we can't take words at face value. Things like we seek to or we strive to, those words aren't used for color. Those, used are, those words are used for culpability or for commitment purposes, right? When you say we seek to, that's a nice way of saying we're not guaranteeing that we do, but we try. So, so that kind of aspect of when we're reading privacy policies, it points to this idea that consumers can't trust what it says. And I'm not saying that companies do things maliciously. You have a company, whether it's the size of, of Google or it's the size of a startup with 10 employees. Both of those companies, if falling into scope of a, of a privacy law that requires a policy of them, they are being asked to create a document that is long enough to explain everything they do with personal information in that area, but short enough that you and I as consumers without a legal degree or a technical background can understand it. That's without prescription of what it needs to look like, how it needs to be organized, has made privacy policies the Wild West. If you go, and my colleagues and I are in the middle of a process right now where we are assessing and performing what we call kind of pressure testing on privacy policies, how much can we prove about a policy and how much are, are things that a company is just saying but can't be proven without, say, an internal audit? We can't even get to that yet because what we're finding is between profits, nonprofits, government entities, businesses of all sizes and industry, the format, the location, how you get to policies, how they're worded, the organization of them within the document, they're drastically different. So you're, you're, you're desperately searching for some kind of standardization 
that regulations have not put into place. There is no standard, this is what a privacy policy should look like. And again, that wasn't done out of negligence. It was done out of trying to make it easier for businesses to comply. But in making it that non-prescriptive, you've also made it such that consumers aren't able to get the value that was intended from the get-go. So if you look at a policy today, I challenge you to go in there for your employer and look at it and say, as an employee, what do I agree to? To anyone listening, if you think that your employer doesn't have you agreeing to a privacy policy, I promise you they are. Please, let's talk because they are. It just might be a policy by a different name. It could be an employee handbook. It could be a code of conduct. There are privacy things that you are agreeing to as an employee, no different than as a consumer who walks into a brick and mortar store or a consumer that opens a mobile app or goes to a website to buy something. You are agreeing to something. So right now, in its current state, policies are not delivering on its commitment, which was intended to be providing you and I as data subjects with the information we need to make a choice for ourselves. Instead, they are treated as check the box compliance documents. And that's not to say companies are doing it wrong. That's how regulation has formed it. What are some of those words that we should watch out for? What are some of those flags that show up for you when you look at a privacy policy and wonder whether or not the the company can actually prove uh, what it's claiming to do or that the company is trying to be evasive about something. You mentioned we seek to or we strive to. What other red flags or words that you would want to flag? Sure, absolutely. So there's, there's a lot of different aspects to it. When I teach students how to read these policies, uh, I often caution both trying to start with a startup of the smallest, but still in scope for these regulations, kind of size of an operation, as well as the biggest of the big, the Googles, the Apples, the Amazons, because both of those two ends of the spectrum have unique complexities. When you're reading a startup's policy, if it exists, it was probably copied from another thing, probably written just by a single legal counsel and reviewed by one, maybe two people inside the company. So you're getting something that started from a template and maybe only was made specific in a couple of areas because that's what they have to do for compliance purposes. When you go to the far end of the spectrum and you look at a Google or an Amazon, you're looking at something that has been through so many iterations and through hundreds, if not thousands of individual wordsmiths, individuals of legal background, of technical background, of business background, who have had some kind of input or say into what it says, that interpreting the language requires you to read into every phrase. So it's very difficult to start there. So I always recommend starting somewhere in the middle in terms of a company's maturity and their privacy journey. But getting back to your question, what to look for. So 10 years ago, I would have said, look for, we use your data for research purposes or for purposes of research and development. That was a favorite and that was intended to couch into anything having to do with the business. Now, that's not so much allowed anymore, or at least is, is largely frowned upon as a potentially deceptive statement. But what do you see today? You see, we use your data for purposes necessary to provide you with products and services. Okay, can you tell me more? Because that statement alone requires you as the consumer to understand every possible product or service they offer. And that includes the third parties that they work with to bring you those products and services. That statement alone is intended to cover a swath of things that businesses can do. Now, again, I, I have to stress that is in compliance with law in many places right now. So it's not that businesses are doing this nefariously. It's allowed in the space 
as as specific as you can get without having to have a 37 page document because if you get more specific the argument is it's too much information so there needs to be a happy medium and i don't think we're there but that's one phrase to look for a similar statement you'll find a lot is we retain your data for as long as necessary if the sentence stops there red flag raised you need to be able to understand how you measure necessary. If they say it's only as necessary to fulfill things you ask of us, well, at least the consumer can say, if I buy something from you, I can think to myself how long that means you're going to take you're going to keep it. You need to keep banking information to process payment, but not any longer. You need to keep receipts and information about the purchase for tax reporting reasons, which might mean maybe six or seven years after the point of purchase because you could be audited by a governmental body. So you can at least start to theorize, whereas the more generic the term, the more we're asking of the consumer to just know how that business operates and to know what they mean without saying what they mean. So those are a few things. It's really around the statements of how they use it and then how long they're going to retain it. Another big flag is discussion right now, and, and this was a, a big challenge with the CCPA or the, the California Consumer Privacy Act around selling and now sharing of information. California's definition of data selling included some attributes that were not exchange of data for money. It had aspects of other materials of considerable value, which could include things like strengthening a business relationship that could be considered selling. Many businesses have taken a hardline approach in saying selling is monetary exchange. So when a business or website says, we do not sell your personal information, CCPA kind of made that an acceptable thing. Now what you're seeing is we do not sell, but we may share your information. Selling and sharing are being put together. So when you're reading policies and you're looking at how they disseminate data or who they share data with, Selling and sharing should go hand in hand for you. Consider those two things to be very similar because there is no business on the planet that does not share data. It absolutely has to happen. Just like this podcast we're on, we are sharing information with Zencaster as our platform. We need to acknowledge that and you and I get to make decisions for ourselves as to whether or not we consent to being recorded knowing the third party you're using. So when you're looking at those policies, do they tell you who they share it with? Or do they just say various marketing companies? Well, if it's one I've heard of, maybe I'm okay with it. If it's one I've never heard of with one employee, maybe I'd really rather not. That kind of specificity is necessary for you to, to make those decisions. So it's when you see those generalized statements that make you stop and say, well, what does that mean? Those are really those areas where I encourage you to stop, pause, red flag, what does this mean for me? Ultimately, you may say, that's fine. I don't know what it means and I'm okay with that. That's your decision. But the point is that everybody should have the ability to inspect that sort of information and make the decision that's right for you or right for your loved ones if you're on behalf of children, for example. I'm very curious how you as a person so knowledgeable about all of these different issues move in digital space. Being in the ethics and technology and regulation space for, I would say now about five years, 
I would say that I have become very cautious about which apps I use, about how I read privacy policies in terms of conditions before I do anything. My partner makes fun of me because I will not download any app on my phone until I've read their privacy policy. And I keep the amount of apps that I have on my phone to a bare minimum because I'm worried about them exchanging information over different APIs by way of being on my phone. And so, for example, you know, we'll go hiking and I'll wonder what kind of flower it is or what kind of tree it is that is on the trail. And he says, you know, there's an app that you can download where you can point your phone at the flower or at the tree and it will decipher the image and give you information. Are you so worried that big flower is going to be accessing your information, right? And I'm like, kind of. I mean, it's it's a kind of, you know, fantastical example, but kind of, yeah. So I'm wondering what you do differently in your digital practices, knowing this information and, and having this expertise. So I will say I am I am far more cautious in, in my days now. You could say it's just me becoming an old guy, but I am much more cautious based on what I've learned in my career. But it's not necessarily at individual companies or very specific pieces of information. It's more to the knowledge of how data aggregation works at scale. And by data aggregation, I mean not just individual businesses compiling linked data sets about you. So sure, if, if a business wants to find out what flower I saw on a trail, that is a decision. I'm, I'm less concerned about the flower for me, and I'm more concerned about what other pieces of information are attached to that kind of transaction that can that can tell the recipient more about me and then right. eventually will be appended to a larger profile. So for example, when you use that app, does it take your IP address? Does it take your geolocation? Does it try to record when that is? And a company might say, well, in order to train our model, it's helpful to know where you are because we can look at encyclopedias and 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 uh, and listings of of native plants and native flowers to the area we are and that improves the accuracy of our process of our platform so in trying to improve the accuracy of their platform which you would see in their privacy policy their theoretical privacy policy uh, they would say we collect geolocation information in order to provide you with the most accurate results on searches that you submit in doing that though what else is that geolocation now being appended to they now know where i user was they know what they saw and if depending upon that app and its partners that it shares data with that's now part of a much larger profile about me so that might be something that's considered a little bit less you know if they want to find out my favorite color sure maybe i'm okay with that but if they want to track every ride share that I've used and then append that to the ads I was viewing while in the back of a Lyft or an Uber ride. That kind of thing gets pretty complex. And that might sound like that's a really rare sort of example, but the role of data brokers and the role of, of data aggregation as part of fueling a lot of this new AI and genera generative AI technologies, they rely upon massive data sets. So the smaller your data set, the less likely you're going to be able to apply something at that scale. They need more. And when you think about how data is handled by businesses, it's always, I'll think about a purpose later. Let's get it now. 
and let's worry about how to handle it later. I've got really smart people working for me that'll figure it out. So for me, it's much more about how do I control what my aggregated profile is in cyberspace. For example, I haven't used certain social media platforms since college, not because I didn't have a use for it, but because I just became a little un, uh, unsatisfied with how they were protecting that data and the sorts of things that they were collecting and the ways that they were using it. But for me, it's about what is that one added piece of information and the metadata attached to it? What else can that be attached to or appended to by that business or by that organization? Um, because that sort of train of once it's out there, it's out there, it now exp expands and extends to that new piece of information. It's out there. And once it can be linked, it's going to continue to be out there. So I encourage you to look at flowers. I think there's a commercial around right now about Google and you can pull up your your Android device and and it'll uh, it'll look at the flowers and tell you which plants are good for beginners or which plants need a lot of sun. Fantastic utility. But depending upon the other things it collects and combines in collecting that one piece of query information, it could tell that business a lot more about you than you think you're telling them to use that service. Let's talk a little bit more about regulation. Many people cite GDPR or the General Data Protection Regulation that governs information privacy in the European Union and in the European Economic Area as a kind of gold standard for data privacy. However, I speak to people in industry, particularly in businesses pivoted around data collection practices in the United States, and they're actually quite critical of GDPR. They point to GDPR as, for example, stifling innovation in Europe. They point to GDPR as overcomplicating regulation so as to limit the ability of new businesses to become competitive uh, because of the restrictions that they impose. I'm wondering how you think about GDPR. Uh, and GDPR in particular as a standard for data privacy. Do you think that it is a standard or even a gold standard for data privacy? What does GDPR do right? What does it get wrong? Should GDPR be a model for other countries to adopt? In my opinion, there are a lot of positives that GDPR has introduced to the privacy environment. One is that it has become a regulation that other regulations are measured against. When, when the CCPA in California was introduced, a lot of people in the field said, how does this compare to GDPR? When uh, Canadian privacy law is being enhanced in, in current time, they are looking to GDPR and saying, are there aspects of GDPR that make sense for us? I think it was successful in its ability to create some standardization across national borders, which was largely unheard of prior to that. And there are a lot of concepts and, and spirit of the law in GDPR that does a lot of really good things. And in my opinion, it exposes this content, uh, this aspect of, of rights of individuals or rights of data subjects. I have the right of access to my data. I have the right to request deletion of my data if you don't have a reason to keep it, things like that. So I think it does a good job of communicating the sorts of control that we believe, we being regulators of Royal, we in this case believe that consumers should have over their information, that data subjects should have over their personal information. But, it, but there are a lot of weaknesses in it. One, I, I do agree with your supposition that it can stifle growth of small businesses. There is not, say, GDPR light and a GDPR heavy or 2.0 that once you get to a certain size, you now have to get to this new tier. You're either in scope or you're not. So 
one could argue, and I've seen this in a lot of cases where the amount of lift and investment and redirection of process to be fully compliant, or I'll air quote fully compliant there because no business is 100% compliant with the GDPR. But in doing that, the lift of a small company, it's not easy for a small company to say, I'm going to go hire four external counsel, two new internal legal counsel, 10 engineers, and some data practitioners to tell me how to do this. Because that might be quintupling the size of the company. Whereas a larger company like a Google or a Microsoft can say, sure, we can invest that. We already have legal counsel in place. We can hire experts in that space and we can design our own solutions to deal with it. So the economies of scale when it comes to getting to a point of air quote compliance with something like GDPR is not even. It is not balanced when it comes to smaller companies having less requirements. This concept or this, this reality, I think, is why we see an increase in what is, we're referring to a lot as risk-based decision-making and privacy. Now, what do we mean by risk-based decision-making? In this case, and you'll hear me argue, all businesses, just like in security, all businesses accept some risk in the data privacy space. Some companies will say, we need a policy, but it doesn't need to be that in depth. We just need it to get by. We're not getting the regulators eyes on it. We're not the biggest one. We're not going to be the first one that gets looked at. Let's just do this and move on. That is a risk-based decision where they are addressing some aspects of compliance and then choosing to accept risk in others. Similar to we're going to hire an external team to come and tell us what to do versus I'm going to hire 10 people to do it internally. That decision to invest in people or in software. We're going to go buy a tool that helps us get compliant more quickly. Now, there's a lot of snake oil out there, so I, 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 I challenge the concept that a tool can magically make you compliant. But the decision to use either hiring mechanisms and or software to help you become compliant and address these needs, it's, it's, it's not, uh, those are all risk-based decisions. You are choosing what is right for your business. GDPR doesn't say what you have to do to get to that point. It just gives you goals that you need to be able to address. Consumer questions you need to be able to answer. Also, there are aspects of the GDPR that I think in being non-prescriptive, in being generic, they create as many questions as they do answers. One example would be in discussing what kind of safeguards or what kind of information security requirements are required for a business processing personal data. You'll see something to the extent of, and this isn't just a GDPR, but we're talking about GDPR in particular right now. You'll see something to the extent of, given the state of the art, referring to how technology is operating at this point in time, you must implement controls necessary to protect information commensurate with the risk and sensitivity of the information you're handling. Now, I don't know if you know what that means. It sounds like a lot of gobbledygook on first pass, but what it really ends up becoming is this discussion of, am I processing highly sensitive data? If I am, the amount of security controls I have to put in place is supposed to be higher than if I'm not. But what is that bar? What controls are examples? Now, GDPR does say things like data encryption is an example, but what kind of encryption, what level of encryption? Does it need to be in all external systems and internal systems, or is there a difference? Those sorts of prescriptions leave businesses to more or less guess based on the amount of risk they are willing to accept or their risk appetite and what they're able to do as a business without stopping the operation entirely, without 
closing the money printer and you know saying eh, we can't be compliant let's let's just sell the business and walk away we can't do it they make decisions on that on that case so gdpr is in a way that many other regulations have been it does fail to be prescriptive enough to get consistent implementation and that's really what i think consumers need it doesn't it's not just looking at one business to the next it's also if i want to decide where i go shopping and i say i can go to home depot or lowe's for this home improvement project if I, person who cares about how they handle my data, want to look at those, looking at Home Depot and Lowe's policies are going to be drastically different endeavors. And it's not because they're trying to fool you. It's because these, these laws like GDPR do not prescribe what they need to look like and how they need to be structured, as we discussed earlier. So that lack of prescription is in many different articles of the GDPR. And as new countries and new areas say, hey, the GDPR is a decent model. Let's start with that many of those weaknesses are being adopted in new laws. And that's what we saw with the CCPA. Many things in California were adopted in a very similar way as to, to the way that they were in GDPR. And, and that's, a, that's a trend that you see in many countries outside the uh, North American region as well. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit more now that we've spent some time on GDPR, thinking about the United States, not just on a state level, but on a federal level or on a national level. The Biden administration has recently signaled what I think is a renewed interest in government regulation around digital technologies, broadly speaking. The executive order on AI, I think, signaled to the companies, but also to the public that the administration is taking a very different stance than, for example, it did during the Obama administration when we saw the last kind of digital revolution, right? Many people are saying that right now we're in the middle of a new digital revolution, mobilized uh, and amplified by things like generative AI. I'm wondering if you think that this uh, executive order in particular or the Biden administration's stance toward regulation when it comes to digital technologies indicates to you that we might move towards something GDPR-like in the United States. Would the United States, in your view, ever adopt a GDPR-like act of regulations? Could it work here? Why or why not? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with the could we have something at that national level? When I'm working with, and as I've been working with clients over the last half decade, and states, California and beyond, have come up with their own Nabis privacy laws or, or comprehensive privacy laws, meaning it addresses many different rights of individuals and requirements. It's not specific to, say, data breaches. Starting with California and beyond, a lot of my clients start with this idea of, do I have enough exposure to that state to just have a state practice and then for everywhere else. So I had companies that would say, can I have a California specific set of data policies and then everything else is my general default practice? Like, okay, maybe. The flip side of that would be to say, you know, the governing by, by most stringent rule or by least privilege, if you will, where you take the most stringent requirements of any applicable law and you say, I gotta do that across my entire practice. When it's just one state, most clients would say, mm, no. 
and and I'm talking about U.S. based companies as opposed to companies that are global, because of of course the the growth in the United States has is not like the new. It's these laws exist in many different countries across the globe outside of just the GDPR and the EU. So it's not that the U.S. is ahead of anybody else. In fact, I, I argue that we're we're a little bit behind in terms of our regulation of this space. But back to your question. It, it becomes death by a thousand cuts, which is companies are saying, I've got a California process. I've got a Colorado process. I've got a Virginia process. Now in the future, I'm going to have an Indiana and an Iowa and an Oregon and a Montana or 12 states now that either have signed omnibus privacy laws or in effect comprehensive privacy laws that are either in effect now or will be in the coming years and have been signed into that state law. So if you imagine a business trying to say, I operate in the U.S. nationwide. Am I going to implement 12 different state-level practices? I mean, that's insanity. It can't be done. It can't be managed at that scale. So businesses are then forced to say, how are we going to have a standardized approach that gets to as many of these requirements, if not all, as possible, but can be consistent across how we work? So when I think of, well, it's 12 now, next year will it be 20, 25? You, I, we'd be killing businesses to say, operate on 50 different standards. It just doesn't work at that scale and complexity across data infrastructure. So the first question of, can that sort of thing work in the United States? I think it is a far better solution than state level laws because businesses are feeling the pain from having so many different versions of the rule to refer to. These state laws, while they have overlap, all have their unique idiosyncrasies that make it special. And Every single one that goes into place is yet another headache for companies to say, what do we need to change? What can we keep? And do we just need to accept the, the, that we're not going to be fully in compliance or not, which some businesses do. Now getting to the point of, of do we see that sort of thing moving forward, specifically with the, the executive order around AI, I will say some of the federal discussion, and, and I won't get into you know the state of the US Congress, I'll stay away from that, all things being equal there. The state of the privacy discussion has ceded a little bit of the floor to AI in particular and to issues of generative AI. And I understand why that is, but they're not necessarily paired directly as AI issues and privacy issues are the same and need to be dealt with together. And I think that makes sense, but it has forced some privacy discussion, specifically the, the in discussion or in debate uh, American data protection law that has been um, posed on the floor of, of Congress. Could that sort of thing work? Absolutely. But my biggest problem with any sort of law is enforcement. If you think about how state laws work right now, in most cases, there is no private right of action. So me as a consumer, I'm not allowed to sue a company directly because of that under a state law. I have to work with, say, my state's attorneys general. In relying upon the attorney general of a state, which does not have an office of thousands of lawyers and investigators, trying to govern all personal data processing companies that fall into scope of their law, it's absolutely untenable. So when we look at the, the press and you see, you know, Google's fined again in the EU or Microsoft gets fined for this or Facebook was fined by the FTC for that in the United States, it can feel like those large companies are the only ones that do things that transgress privacy law. But that's actually not the case. We just don't have an oversight body and an enforcement body that is structured and staffed to be able to attack this problem. So when we think about how a government, a federal level law in the United States could look, 
some discussion you hear is the FTC should enforce it. If you look at the FTC, and I think last time I looked, they had around 1,100 full-time employees. The FTC covers a lot more than privacy. And it's not to say that they have privacy experts on staff at that scale to be able to govern and audit bodies. That gets to the concept of the paper I mentioned earlier about learning from our past and taking aspects of Sarbanes-Oxley, which was to reconvene trust in investors in financial reporting, taking the same idea of creating a government side oversight body and then having independent third party auditors, which on the SOC side, you'll have your Deloitte and your Deloitte, your Ernst and Young, your KPMG, those sorts of companies. They have an audit structure and they have oversight from the government to perform those audits independently. And then they assess the companies because that kind of business can scale. That kind of enforcement can scale. But just saying the FTC is going to handle it. And if they can't, maybe the IRS. Now we're getting into assigning specific subject matter to organizations that weren't created for that purpose and aren't staffed with the resources and subject matter expertise they need to do so. And self-regulation is not going to get it done. So can a law like that work? I believe so. But it will, it will depend upon and succeed or fail upon the injection of a scalable enforcement function. And that answer, I don't believe, is make the FTC do it because we'd have to add at least a zero to the amount of employees that they have to do it. And I still think there's a better model. Other than big flower, again, I'm being hyperbolic here, or big plant, what, what keeps you up at night? What are the biggest challenges facing data privacy today? So one thing that keeps me up at night is, and we discussed this a little bit, but it's the aspect of trust. And right now, the burden of trust is being placed on you and me as consumers or data subjects. We are expected to trust that what is in those policies is being fulfilled. So if I am in a state or a location that has a right to deletion or a right to be forgotten, it's really a right to deletion or a right to be forgotten in specific scenarios. And then on top of that, does that business immediately re-ingest that data through other processes? And that gets to the concept of data brokers. The presence of data brokers, whose at least in part business is to aggregate as much information as possible to service individual companies, but also to sell that data. When I ask them to delete that data, if they're able to re-get that data through public sources, or if they're able to argue they have legitimate business purpose to keep it, they can tell me to take a hike. They can also say, we've deleted everything we were legally required to. That doesn't tell me what you kept, and it doesn't tell me what you deleted. So I don't really know what you did. I just have to trust that you did what you did and that it was in compliance with law. So what keeps me up at night the most is, do the rights that we think we're being given actually exist? When I say, give me access to my data, I'm trusting that what you give me access to is everything you have, when in reality, it's probably everything you were able to reasonably find without undue burden that that law that you were referring to required them to provide. I don't know that. I'm a consumer. I want, I, I, I'm taking this at face value and saying, give me access to my personal information. The law says you must. And then I have to trust the results that I get. So in that kind of trust where there is trust but no verification, it's difficult to, to expect that we can, we as consumers or data subjects, can consistently believe the words that we're agreeing to in those policies and in those notices. So what keeps me up at night the most is the trust is all on the consumer side. 
I think we all have to have vested interest in not just providing, but ensuring and validating the trust, the consumers trusting businesses, the businesses being involved with governments, the governments being able to assure consumers, and that kind of circle needs to operate that way. And until we get to a place where wrongdoing is disincentivized for large-scale companies or proper behavior is incentivized for companies, till we get to that point, trust is going to be what the current state is. And in my opinion, it's an ineffective and misleading current state. I dream of a world where people want to do things because it's the right thing to do. But I also recognize there's a corporate aspect to this. There's a capitalist aspect to this that needs to be recognized. So it also needs to be a matter of risk-based, based on the amount of things you're handling, how you're handling it, the sensitivity of the data, being more thoughtful about the requirements that we apply to businesses so that instead of everyone trying to do something differently at different scales and expecting consumers to just know, it needs to be more explicit for them. And then it needs to be validated by third parties. Until we get to that validation, it's all trust and it's all on this side of the table. I think we have time for one last question. You and I both teach at UC Berkeley School of Information in the Graduate Data Science Program. And over the conversations that we've had about your teaching and dialoguing with your students and teaching a class with you, I have a sense of what you stress for students who take the course on data science and human values. But I thought I'd put you to the test and ask you directly to compress a semester's worth of seminars into a soundbite. What would you want students who take your classes to know or understand or be aware of when it comes to data privacy? What would you want to tell them or have them remember when they leave your classes? Absolutely. <laughs> it's a great question because it, the the early portions of the course can feel like it's it's almost like a righteous outrage. We want to show how the field has come to be so important and the harms that can come to pass. And one thing we get a lot is that feeling of helplessness. I have students that will say, I don't, I can't control my data anymore. I, there's nothing I can do about it. What do I do? The biggest thing that you can take away is that we all play distinct roles. And in many cases, we play multiple roles in this process. For our students in the data science program, the products, the services, the data infrastructure, and the algorithms they design, they have an influence into how they design it. They can embed privacy best practices into the work that they do. Engineers building things, they can build those things into that process. It's the same sort of thing with the security side. It's not just the obligation of information security professionals. It's everyone's responsibility. And if you're a consumer and you're feeling helpless, there are things you can do. There are places you can go to learn about what businesses are doing, what they're not just what they're saying, but what they're doing. There are resources for you to learn more about what governments can allow you to do. What are your rights? But it's that we have a much more material impact as individuals than we think we do. And while power dynamics in the past may have prevented the ability to band together and say, no, we as a, a community are going to force change, we can do that now. And we're seeing that with individual companies. I know a prior episode mentioned how Twitter is now, you know, seen as in shambles and it's something that parents don't want their kids to use. That wasn't always the opinion, right? You had the same thing with Instagram where they considered doing Instagram for kids. And then that was, you know, put on the table for many reasons. We do as individuals and as groups of individuals have more influence than we think and feeling helpless is something that I want to empower people to remove. That's a, that's a, it's a barrier to entry 
that doesn't actually exist. We can have that impact. And it's not just us as data subjects, it's also us as practitioners, whether we're in the soft sciences and the hard sciences, whether we're in businesses, in finance and support, or we're actually in the building and delivery of products and services, you have things that you can do. And my hope is that we can train individuals to think about those sorts of things so that we can all take that responsibility and we can all together create an environment in which we embed these things by default. Thank you very much, Jared. Thank you, Deb. And that's all for this season of Technical Human. We'll be back in a few weeks with brand new episodes of the show. Enjoy the holiday break. In the meantime, check out our archives. We have episodes that range across the broad intersection where ethics and tech meet. From a conversation about the future of lab-grown meat featuring Paul Shapiro, to a dialogue about race, medicine, and technology featuring Dr. Evelyn Hammonds, to a conversation about the ethics of the algorithm featuring Dr. Todd Presner, and to a conversation about sci-fi and imagineering featuring Dr. Lisa Yazit. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.